With a word about the trials we so often face in this life, here's Pastor Ed Taylor. Trials don't make the believer. Trials reveal the believer. First to themselves and then to others. Listen, if you're in the midst of a trial right now, you're in the midst of a difficulty, things didn't go your way, things are really hard for you, you're experiencing something that really even has nothing to do with you, but it brings pain into your life, this is a growth moment for you. Be open for God to speak into your life about things that are going on in your life so that you can grow from it, not be destroyed by it. This is amazing grace. Hello again, and welcome to Abounding Grace. In a moment, we'll be joined by Pastor Ed Taylor. Today, we're introduced to Judas, one of the 12 disciples. As you'll hear in a minute, he wasn't a believer in Christ, even though he appeared to others that he was. But there's no fooling God. He sees us for who we really are, and he sees our sin as well. Here's Pastor Ed with part one of A New Kind of Love. Take your Bibles, open them to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 13. We're going to start in Matthew 13. We'll end up in John 13, where we're studying as a church in our weekend services, going verse by verse through the Gospel of John. But before we get to John 13, I want to give you insight of what we're going to be seeing in practicality. Because in Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 24, Jesus shares a parable with us, a teaching about the wheat and the tares. He uses a familiar picture for those listening at the time. Not so familiar for us. There's not many wheat farmers among us here in the Denver metro area. But I believe with a little bit of explanation, we will understand the point that Jesus is making. Remember, a parable is a story. Jesus would use a story so that he could cast the truth alongside that story. The idea of a parable is simply this. You get the story, you get the truth. And he gives very practical, simple stories. Notice in verse 24, another parable, this is Matthew 13, he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. And when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, sir, Did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. His servant said to him, Do you want us to go and gather them up? Verse 29. But he said, No. Lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. Jesus explaining the kingdom of God to us. And he gives us insight to what the kingdom of God will look like. God's kingdom will spread very rapidly by having good seed sown. We've learned earlier in Matthew's gospel that 
The good seed is the gospel of Jesus Christ. When someone responds to the gospel, the kingdom of God grows, just like you and I responded to the gospel, and some of you will respond today. That's how the kingdom of God grows. But there's opposition. There's enemies. And the enemies want to ruin the crop, wants to ruin the kingdom. And the way that they ruin the kingdom is by going in at night, going in when everyone's not paying attention, and sowing bad seed, false seed. When they were sleeping and at rest, the enemy comes in and sowed what is known as tares. Now, a tare was a crop that looked identical to wheat. You know, wheat has a small, thin stem with a top of the kernel of the wheat at the top. And as it's growing, you can tell the difference between the tare and the wheat. They look identical until the end. At the end, you can begin to tell which is which because the wheat in the top there, the top part of the wheat, has a kernel to it with some weight. The longer it grows and the taller it gets, the wheat begins to bend over. Where the tare, it also has a top to it that looks identical to a wheat, except it has no kernel in it. It's false. It's not real. And at the end, at the time of reaping, it's very obvious, the real and the false. Now, here's the issue in the realm of the kingdom of God or even more appropriately within the church of Jesus Christ. The tactics of Satan are the same today. The first, things he, the first thing he tries to do is to snatch the word out of the hearts of men. Try to confuse and confound. But if he can't do that, then he begins to try to persecute the church from the outside. But history will tell us that persecution never hurt the church. It always makes the church stronger. Think about it in your own life. It's in times of comfort and ease that you're at your greatest danger. Because when you're comfortable and everything's going your way, your prayer life isn't that strong. You're not crying out to God. You're not running. Now, there are those seasons, of course, when you are. But when you're in crisis and when there's difficulty in your life, that's when you really draw near to God. The crisis doesn't destroy you. It makes you stronger. It causes you to run to the one that can help you. Well, the same is true for the church. Persecution hasn't destroyed the church. In any generation, it's only made it stronger. So if the the devil can't get in from the outside by trying to persecute and destroy, he does the same thing over and over again, just like this parable. He comes in the church. And the way that he does it the most is by spreading falsehood and sending false believers among the church. That's the way it works. And our response is often the same as the parable. Well, should we go in and just take care of them? You know, when we find a false, should we just take care of them? Now, we have the responsibility as pastors to watch out for falsehood in the church, and we do. And on occasion, when things are revealed, we'll have to enact church discipline and take care of those things. But the issue, though, is that you can't always tell, and that's the difficulty. You just can't always tell a false believer from a real believer. Because false believers can be good liars. They have all the right things to say. They have all the right appearance. Amen. God bless you, brother. And, I, and, and that's the difficulty with the tares. You have to wait till the end. It's not always quickly revealed. That poses a difficulty for us as a church. Jesus said the tares, they'll be among you. Don't be surprised by it. And as you come in contact with a false believer or a false teacher now and then, keep your eyes and hearts on the Lord. Take care of the ones that aren't false. Judgment is coming, and when judgment comes, it'll be evident. There's a timing. They can't hide forever. 
Now, come to John chapter 13 with me because we have insight among the disciples here of a tear among the true. A a false believer among the true believers that are with Jesus, that have spent three years with him. Notice with me, as we saw this last time in verse 2 of chapter 13, supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jump down to verse 18. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Among the godly men in the room surrounding Jesus, there is an ungodly man. His heart is filled with sin, filled with the devil himself, corrupt. He was by definition a tear among the wheat. You wouldn't be able to tell just looking at him. I know today, when we mention the name Judas, automatically we think, well, well, we know who Judas is, but they don't. They don't know who Judas is. I mean, when's the last time? Judas is such an unpopular name. When's the last time you were at the mall and you heard a mom saying, Judas, where are you, Judas? Nobody names their kids Judas. Nobody names their girls Jezebel. I mean, we just know who who they are. We know. They didn't know. They had no idea Judas was Judas. They had no idea the corruptness in his heart. They're about to find out, but they don't know right now. But Jesus knew. He knew exactly. You know, there were two people in that room who knew who Judas was. Jesus and Judas. He knew. And it's sad but true. Wherever there are false, wherever there's a false believer or a fake believer or a make-believer or a Judas among the true believers, there's always going to be pain. Because people like that hurt other people. It's just the way it is. People that are make-believing, people that are you know, playing games with God, people that are hip- hypocrites, they have a tendency to hurt other people. And within the church, that means there's a tendency for you and I to get hurt by the false. And I dare say that some of you listening to me, you've been hurt by a false believer or by a fake believer or even worse, a hypocritical believer. Those that are pretending to follow Jesus will hurt other people. And it's fascinating, isn't it? It's fascinating to me, and I should be to you as well, when our response when someone hurts us or when we experience pain because of a Judas, uh, because of a falsehood. We just can't believe that we would respond. So Many times we respond very well in the spirit, but there's also many times when we're hurt, we respond in the flesh. And aren't you surprised when you respond in the flesh? Many times I am. It shouldn't surprise me, but it does. You know, oftentimes when we're hurt and our response disappoints us, we'll begin to blame other people for it. We'll begin to blame situations for it. For example, you know, you're out in the garage building something and there you're putting it all together. You take out the hammer and you're hammering it away. And then you hit, instead of the nail, you nail your thumb. Boom! And then all of a sudden, words are coming out of your mouth that have, we haven't heard for 20 years. I mean, it is so, it is, it is, you have such a testimony that your neighbors here, oh, the Christian's cussing, we need to see this. And they come over, they go, are you all right? He's like, you know what, I'm just so sorry I said that. I really shouldn't have said that. But you know, if I wouldn't have hit my thumb, I would have never said that. That's really not me. That's not, you're like, whoa, whoa wait a minute, wait a minute. Hitting your thumb didn't make you say anything. All of that was in you and hitting your thumb gave the occasion for it all to come out. 
We have it backwards. You know, I would never have done that if that person didn't do it. No, that, that's not true at all. What's the response that you see right now was in you all along. The Bible says, Jesus put it this way, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's in us. And the occasion of trial or crisis brings it out of us. You can't blame another person. And you can't blame a situation. All of the fleshly evil responses that come when you're hurt, especially by a Judas, it was actually in you. When a crisis comes into our lives, it doesn't create all those horrible feelings in us. It only reveals them. Trials and difficulties and pain are the revealers of things in us, not the creator. And I've heard it said that trials really make a person. I don't fully agree with that statement, although I understand it, because God will use trials to craft us and to make us and to mold us into the image of Christ, for sure. I get that. But trials don't make the believer. Trials reveal the believer. First to themselves and then to others. Listen, if you're in the midst of a trial right now, you're in the midst of a difficulty, things didn't go your way, things are really hard for you, you're experiencing something that really even has nothing to do with you, but it brings pain into your life, this is a growth moment for you. Be open for God to speak into your life about things that are going on in your life so that you can grow from it, not be destroyed by it. God does use trials to produce deep and abiding character in us, that's for sure. I like what Charles Spurgeon once wrote, and I quote, What kind of patience do we get from the grace of God? It's a patient that accepts the trial as from God. Calm resignation does not come at once. Often long years of physical pain or mental depression or career disappointment or multiple deaths are needed to bring the soul into full submission to the Lord's will. After much crying, the child is weaned. After much chastening, the son is made obedient to the father's will. It's by degrees we learn to end our quarrels with God and to desire that there not be two wills between God and ourselves, but only one. That God's will may be our will. Believer, if troubles work you to that, then you are a gainer, and I'm sure that you may count them all joy." It's the trial itself is more of a revealer of our hearts than anything. Attitudes, feelings, the spiritual junk that often lies dormant in a person's life until the trial comes, until the heart is revealed through the mouth and through the situation. In John chapter 13, we have Jesus with his disciples. Eleven of them are godly good men. One of them is a fake believer. He's not real. And he's going to cause a lot of pain for the other 11. He's going to hurt them deeply. He's going to make a decision that will hurt them deeper than anything they've ever felt thus far. So with that in mind, pick up with me now in verse 19 where we left off. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Now if you like to write in your Bibles, verse 19 is a great definition of biblical prophecy. Jesus is describing to us what prophecy is. I'm telling you ahead of time what's going to happen so you know when it does come to, ha- when it does come to pass, you'll, you'll understand, you'll have, your relationship with me will be validated. Prophecy is a huge tool of God that he uses to clarify for us and demonstrate to us that he is God and we are not. 
God can predict the future with 100% accuracy because he knows the future. Now, in the coming weeks, we're going to pause in our study in John 13, and we're going to really look at the power of the scriptures and why why you can trust your Bible. I was looking back over the course of our church, and I've never taught a Bible study helping us as a church understand in one or two settings, understand how, where our Bible came from, how it came together, how you can trust it. Because when you're out sharing the gospel, most likely people are going to go after the Bible. They're going to go after your faith in the Bible. And how can you believe the Bible? And didn't just men in robes around a campfire write the Bible one day? And I I want to share with you the significance of the scriptures, especially from the perspective of Jesus, because Jesus believed in the scriptures. He was the word incarnate, remember? He believed. He even quotes the scriptures in verse 18. This is what the scripture says. Judas is here because the Bible said he's going to be here. And so we're going to take some time to really look at, and one of the things that you can hold on to with the scriptures is the power of predictive prophecy, where God predicts things hundreds and thousands of years before they come to pass. And when they do, you're like, wow, God, that's amazing. And we're going to look at a few of those in the coming studies. Verse 20, most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whoever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. And now that makes sense. A messenger is validated by the message that was sent. And if you receive a messenger, then you receive the one that sent the message. Jesus is giving them insight in the future. Now verse 21. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another perplexed about whom he spoke. Now pause there for a second. What do you think their faces look like right now? I'm sure there was a lot on their face looking around and going, you know, I bet it's you, Peter. We've been thinking about you. Or maybe some thought it was Judas. I know that some of them even considered, is it I? Is it me? But what faces must have been at that time? Jesus is troubled, so I'm sure his face demonstrated some troublesome thoughts and, you know, the emotions on his face. And now Jesus is saying, one of you guys is going to betray me. And they start looking around. And their faces must be, I mean, that must have been, I mean, this is a real time. They, They don't know that Judas is Judas. And they're all wrestling with it. Then as the disciples look at one another, look, verse 23, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. His name was... John. John always loved to tell us that he was the one that Jesus loved. But he always called Peter by name, verse 24. Simon Peter. I wonder if there was a little bit of, uh, you know, friendly rivalry among them. I'm the one that Jesus loved, but there's Peter. And he names Peter out, verse 24. Peter motioned to him, say, hey, ask him who it is. And then verse 25, leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I've dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now verse 27 is instructive to us because it tells us that Judas was not ever a believer. He was never a true follower of Jesus Christ. And yet... For three years, he has faked out the other disciples. For three years, he has been able to look like and sound like. He's been able to pretend. He's been able to put on a face for everyone but Jesus. Jesus knew. 
And how do we know he was completely an unbeliever? Well, in verse 27, it says that the devil inhabited him. Today, we would use the phrase he was demon-possessed. But more so, he's more than just demon-possessed. He is possessed by the devil himself, like the Antichrist will in the future. That is Pastor Ed Taylor on Abounding Grace. And Ed, some of our listeners may be wondering, how do we really know if we're a true believer or someone like Judas who wasn't? Would you address that for us? Well, Larry, that's a loaded question that could take an entire program to answer, but it's a good question, and we should briefly address it because it's important because many people doubt their salvation. And let me just say, if you think you're saved and at the same time are struggling with doubting your salvation, almost always unbelievers don't doubt their salvation. They don't even think about it. So the fact that you're asking the question and you're concerned is a good thing, even if you're concerned because of your behavior, right? Because you're like, you're looking at yourself and you go, man, I'm a Christian. Why am I doing this? Why am I thinking this? Why am I dealing with this? And one of the revelations, one of the interesting things about following Jesus is that you start to deal with things and you start to think about things that you never dealt with or thought about before. And that's normal. But, you know, think of a few things. A a real believer loves God. A real believer loves the scriptures. A real believer loves what God loves and hates what God hates. A real believer is going to try to stay away from sin and repent and not just feel emotionally bad about sin, but actually have a real, true, godly sorrow over sin. They're going to forsake it. They're going to continue to seek God's best in your life. They're going to continue to grow in God's grace. They're, they're going to have a hunger for the Word. I mean, we can go on and on the list. It's such a great list, but I think that if you're considering whether you're saved or not, just remember the Bible says that the things were written, John writes in 1 John, I wrote you these things so you could know that you know that you're saved. So let me make a recommendation. First of all, read the Gospel of John. You know how it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, then John. Read John. And then flip to the back of the Bible and read 1 John, or many times we'll refer to that as 1 John. And those two books will build your faith and strengthen you and give you a greater sense of assurance that God is with you. If you really don't know, if you really don't know that you're saved, then just pray right now and say, God, I'm listening to this guy on the radio and I'm not sure and I want to turn away from my sin. I admit that I've sinned against you. And I ask you to forgive me of all of my sins. And then go to our website, calvaryco.church, and there's a tab up there um, of how to grow in your faith and all the resources that we have that we give to new believers. We give to you for free right there on our website. Download them, print them out, go through them, do the Bible studies with us, and let's grow in grace together. Thanks, Pastor Ed. As we wrap things up today, I want to remind you, you can hear these studies in John on our website at AboundingGraceRadio.com or through the Calvary Church app. Search for Ed Taylor to download that app today. If you take a brief moment to write or call, you know, that would make our day. Let us know the station you're listening to and if today's study was a blessing to your life. We'd also love to pray for you. You can email us through our website at aboundinggraceradio.com by clicking on contact. 
Abounding Grace is made possible through the support of our listeners. And when you give a donation of $25 or more to Abounding Grace, you're invited to request a copy of E.M. Bounds on Prayer. We know we're to pray, but if you're like many, you don't do it nearly enough. Or when you do pray, it's just a mindless repetition of a phrase you've come to use. Well, this book contains some of E.M. Bounds' finest writings on the subject of prayer and will help you see what a blessing communication with God truly is. I think you'll walk away with some valuable insights that you can apply right away to your prayer time. To donate and order this today, call 877-30-GRACE. That's toll-free, 877-30-GRACE. You can also order it through our e-store at calvaryco.store. It's your generosity that helps us provide the teaching of God's Word on stations all across the nation. We're constantly hearing from listeners that have been helped and are growing by God's abounding grace. Thank you for standing with us. Making a donation to the ministry is easier than ever through our website at AboundingGraceRadio.com. Tell a friend about these daily studies, and then be sure to join Pastor Ed Taylor next time for more teaching from the Gospel of John. That's right here on Abounding Grace. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church, Colorado, here in Aurora.